Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining me. Today, an old friend drops by for a chat. Simon Troth has a long and distinguished career in both the media and in politics. And I remember when I first came to Canberra as a reporter for the ABC in the mid-90s, he was then working for the federal opposition leader. But before that, he spent seven years as a print journalist working in Melbourne for the Herald Sun, amongst a number of other newspapers. He then did 15 years in politics, both with state and federal opposition leaders, but also spent some time uh, with the Premier of Victoria as his media advisor and had several roles also as a policy advisor. He has worked for three industry groups and currently works for the Minerals Council of Australia and has also worked as a consultant to government and the public sector. So he has a rich and varied past. He is in the studio with me now. Simon, thanks very much for joining us on GovComps. David, it's an immense pleasure. And one thing we didn't discuss before the interview started also spent a little bit of time as Director of Strategic Communications for the Victorian Department of Justice. So you worked in the bureaucracy uh, as in well? In the bureaucracy, very proud bureaucrat down in Victoria. <laughs> uh, so that was on uh, running some major communication campaigns on things like community safety, on bushfire safety right. in particular, Victoria being the most fire-prone area of the world, uh, I think next to California, uh, and on areas like corrections officer recruitment and a whole lot of other big challenges down there. So. Okay. Well, let's uh, but, come to that. Let, let's come to that in a moment. But I'm, I'm, I'm interested just to get your your views on how things have changed and how you know it's it's a longish. You know, you've had a, a long and as I say, distinguished career, and you've seen some great change. But what are, what are the big changes that you've seen in communications, and what do people really need to be focused on today to be successful? When I was a 17-year-old cadet journalist, David, typewriters still roamed the earth. It was a long time ago. I remember working as a shop steward for the Australian Journalists Association when one of the big issues was the introduction of computers into a newsroom. Uh, yeah, right. That, that was, a, was back in the late 80s. Late 80s, uh, yeah. So the, way, the, the ways information is produced have certainly changed. Certainly, I think the rise of video has been an extraordinary phenomenon, as we previously discussed, not just on YouTube but on the way it's consumed... Uh, uh, through social media and the like, the immediacy of communication, the way people's uh, people have very short attention spans, uh, and it's becoming ever more challenging to retain their attention, because certainly uh, the amount of media that people consume has increased. The amount of media that is available has uh, increased, but also I think people now are much closer to uh, information in terms of it's a lot more personal. Um, we're seeing now a lot more information consumed through mobile devices, uh, and that in particular is a, a, a growing trend which, which won't go away. I think government has become better at communicating over time. Um, it certainly understands now the need to get closer to the audience, to understand its audience better. Uh, it's, uh, although certainly the, the trends between government and private sector communication uh, are different, uh, it's started to adopt private sector best practice to a much greater degree. 
Um, and you work, obviously, a content group works with government very extensively. And um, over my career, government has become, uh, has acknowledged the need to become closer to its audience. I think that's become a big trend. But, but certainly I, um, my friends in journalism, I certainly don't envy them now. They have, uh, resources are fewer, uh, the pressure is greater, and the multi-channel, multimedia aspect of, uh, of journalism and media now is a much greater thing. I mean, I, as a, uh, a cadet journalist and as a young journalist, I wrote. Uh, I didn't take photos, I didn't shoot video, I didn't record podcasts. Uh, there are a lot of things that weren't invented back then. The pace of change is only going to increase in a way that's exciting because it helps more information get out to more people, uh, but it's something that government in particular has to work much harder to stay on top of. Mm. So that's comprehensive. <laughs> you know, a, you know, if, if we slice that, everything from immediacy to video to not only retaining attention but attracting retention, um, the changing world of journalism, uh, that understanding of mobile, uh, audience first. There's there's so much in that. So I think let's let's unpack that as, as we go. But let's 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 pick off from where you started from, just from a that journalism point of view, and and how best to engage um, with journalists who are operating under those sort of pressures. What's your best advice to people in, in in terms of how best to approach and engage with journalists so that they will talk about your story and will pick your story up? It's a really good point because uh, a lot of people don't handle that well. They see journalists uh, as a bit of a, an alien species. Uh, as I like saying, journalists are people too. Mm. Uh, they've got a job to do. They're under extreme time pressure. I think the uh, showing respect to them, not just as people, but in the way you deal with them, the time of day you deal with them, uh, I think it's really important to have a story for them. A lot of, well, number of people uh, that I've seen as either as a journalist or as a communicator, uh, seem to think that giving a journalist information is sufficient without actually helping them tell the story. It is in an organisation's interest, including in government's interest, to help a journalist tell the story for them, to actually understand that facts and figures might not be enough, that statistics, compelling though they might be, uh, are not sufficient. And in particular, visual imagery is really important, important for the audience. So I think uh, the first rule is to build a relationship with them. Um, but how, how can you build a relationship with someone who is so busy? Well, pick a, to- pick a good time to talk to them. Uh, don't necessarily sell them, try to sell them something up front, particularly if you don't know them. It's a very alienating thing, I think, for a journalist for that to happen. Um, get to know them through their work, which means through the organisation, the outlet, the news outlet they write for know their style, understand their areas of interest, as well as understanding the physical context that they're operating within. Uh, Respect exclusivity. I think I've always found that working with the journalists on exclusives, um, while not playing favourites, and that's a tricky balance, is an important thing to do. Uh, Is it more important now? It is. It is, because it's a very competitive environment. Mm. We've got a multitude of media outlets... um, not all of which are the same quality, but they've each got their own style. Uh, Every different media outlet has a particular style, a particular approach, and it's important to understand those. But I think really brevity, uh, brevity is really important. Not wasting a journalist's time shows them respect. 
Uh, and if you understand the need in a world of 140 character tweets uh, that the uh, that your pitch should be concise, it should be relevant to their audience, it should be timely, and it also should be interesting. Mm. There's no greater crime than boring your audience, David. <laughs> uh, and and you can alienate yourself very quickly if you ring someone up uh, with a, a pitch that you haven't rehearsed yourself, you haven't tested on a colleague, you haven't thought to yourself, if I was a journalist, put yourself in the audience's shoes, and if I... If I rang a journalist, if I was a journalist and I, I, this person contacted me, how would I respond? Hmm. Uh, you know, and there's some rules around that, particularly with the press gallery in terms of contacting people on days like today or yeah. during a parliamentary sitting week. Uh, yeah. But also getting, getting to know people over the long term. It is a long-term relationship that you have with the, with the media and I think one reason that people still talk to me in Canberra and across Australia uh, is that... I'm direct with them, I'm straight with them, but also I try to follow these rules myself in terms of my interaction with the media and also understand how things are changing over time. The compelling content for in a multimedia world uh, has never been more important. So what's more important to get your own channels working effectively with your own compelling content reaching out to the audiences that you've built or to go through the mediated third party of the media? Uh, where, do you, where do you put your most effort? It's tempting to say both are equally important, mm. but an important building block is getting your own channels right because often the media, even before they... If they're looking at contacting you, they will go to your website, they will go to your social media feeds, uh, they will look at those for an understanding of what your organisation's about and what messaging they can get even without contacting you, particularly if they're time poor. But for your own internal audience, you can't expect your colleagues and your peers to understand what your organisation's about and to present a united face and a powerful, effective message to the outside world if you haven't shown them the respect of helping them with content that they can use in their own work. But also uh, it is challenging working with, as you say, mediated third-party outlets because you don't have control over them. Mm. And one thing when I've worked with government uh, and they say, well, uh, oh, we're frustrated or we're angry because the journalist didn't write it how we wanted them to. Mm. So my advice to them is if you want a journalist to write something... Uh, in the way you want them to, buy your own media outlet <laughs> or work more harder on your own media outlets. Yeah. The other thing about, in, about the, uh, your own media outlets is they're very low cost. You can control them internally or perhaps with the, with the help of good external consultants like Content Group. Uh, but they're actually... It, it's good practice to refine those first because it gives you an understanding of how the media actually works from your own perspective. Mm. So they're within your grasp, they're low cost, but also now they're no longer just for internal use. Uh, anything you put on social media is immediately public to the world. So, yes, you have to control them, but they're also a very effective communication tool for dealing with external media uh, as well as helping you to 
refine your content so you can uh, craft it and curate it in a way that will actually help you when you do external media engagement. Mm. So to the point you raised earlier around this uh, immediacy and having to to meet the cycle head on. Obviously, you're working at the Minerals Council of Australia at the moment, which is a very large uh, peak body um, in a very contentious part of um, society uh, and with inside the community. So there is a, you know, necess- uh, there's a necessity for you to be, you know, active. Um, but how, how do you cope with that? How do you cope with that demand for information and, and to be immediate and to be re- responsive and to be proactive and to be able to, to shape that story but to be able to fill the channels with enough content such that you can, you know, at least get on the front foot? The first step is understanding what message, what story you want to tell the world. I mean, the, the, the Australian mining industry has a, a wonderful story to tell it's a really big employer. It contributes a lot to Australia. It's, very, it's got great environmental responsibility, David. No, no. It, it's got a great story to tell, but uh, we have to be very focused in the way we tell it. So we have to understand that uh, if we're to uh, sell the story, to tell the story of the Australian mining industry, we have to do it in a very strategic way. Mm. We can't just think if we fill our channels or fill the media or uh, advertise around the clock to everyone all the time that that's necessarily going to persuade people. Yeah. Uh, we need to understand our audience, firstly. So we uh, do... We spend a lot of time understanding our audience, including with public opinion research... So we can actually understand what is the picture inside the heads of our our audience. How do they feel about us? Not what do we think they want to hear. So that's a really important distinction because I think government sometimes operates from an inside-out perspective. So it, it, it first thinks, well, people must want to hear about this because we're important rather than understanding it from an outside-in perspective of what does our audience think? Mm. What story do we want to tell? What does our audience think about us? And where can we get that alignment? Mm. Uh, so we've, for example, got really good response with things like talking about women and resources, Indigenous employment, mining rehabilitation, a few of those issues. So not taxation, economic employment contribution, yeah. which are very important, but other issues which our audience is curious about. Yeah. So it's to understand what is it, what more, how can we surprise our audience by telling them something they didn't know and helping them to learn and increase awareness about the industry. Um, but in terms of the point you make about the detractors and opponents of the industry, certainly not everyone agrees with us. There are a number of very well-funded and very active activist groups out there. Uh, we don't pick fights with them. Uh, some people think it's a good idea to... Some groups think it's a good idea to invest internal resources in going to war with journalists on Twitter or activist groups in the public arena. We'll certainly uh, combat them in a factual sense when they get things wrong, and they often do. But it's important to understand that if you've got limited time and resources and energy, uh, picking a fight with your opponents... Mm. uh, 
can be can waste a lot of time and energy mm. and resources. Probably time better spent understanding your audience. Could I suggest maybe and getting getting as you say that picture in their head, getting that understanding of what that picture in their head is, or what in fact you want that picture in their head to be. Re- reflecting. So acting is important, but reflecting is also very important, and research helps you reflect. Uh, and discussing with our own members. We've we've got many of Australia's biggest mining companies, a lot of smaller ones too as members, and talking with them about what they'd like us uh, to talk about. We're a member-funded organisation, so we've got a big responsibility to do that. But it's... You have to first get the best possible picture you can of the picture inside the heads of your audience Mm. about you. Mm. That can be confronting, David. Mm. Uh, when I worked in government as a bureaucrat and for government, uh, government is often... Uh, it's certainly risk-averse, and I understand that. It's a more conservative environment than the private sector. But often they were reluctant to actually engage with their audience in terms of campaign evaluation, for example, because uh, they were very happy that they'd spent a lot of money on a great-looking campaign. But the next step, possibly the more important step is to understand if it actually changed attitudes and perceptions. Because otherwise you're largely operating for yourself. You're looking in the mirror, you're patting yourself on the back because you delivered all your KPIs in terms of... uh, Reach. Reach, tarps, uh, audience delivery, covering off on various channels. But what effect did that have? Mm. Uh, But it costs money, evaluation, doesn't it? It's one of the best investments you can make. if you can set aside some of your budget, there are tools available now, not just SurveyMonkey, but other free or low-cost tools. Uh, you don't necessarily need to run focus groups yeah. all the time. They're very, very important, valuable things. Mm-hmm. But in terms of setting aside some of your media buy for uh, research beforehand, monitoring throughout and evaluation after the fact yeah. or after the campaign or after your engagement... Uh, it's an, a tremendous investment. Mm. Uh, it is confronting. You've got to help senior stakeholders understand the importance of it, ministers, departmental heads, etc. cetera. Uh, but engaging with them early on in, in, your, communi- in your communication as a, as a first step or even before you've started to help them understand what you're trying to achieve and what your audience thinks of you um, and the risks associated with various elements of your communication engagement is a really, really important step. How do you encourage them to have the courage, though, to... to because often, you know, and there was only a, an article this week in the, the Sydney Morning Herald where Ross Gittins wrote about the paucity of evaluation because um, I think actually the uh, chief statistician in Australia, David Kalish said that, said that we're really poor at, at doing it compared to colleagues overseas in government in Europe, for example, or the UK um, or in the United States, for example, where, you know, the Congress keeps uh, the bureaucracy uh, honest. Accountable. Because, accountable because they, you know, they insist. Uh, whereas here we, we, we're not so good at it. I just wonder why that's the, the, the case. Why isn't there that courage to look into the mirror and see what maybe you don't want to see. We're scared of failure is mm. part of it. Failure is actually a really valuable thing. It helps you improve. 
it shows you where you've got it wrong. And particularly with, I think, digital media helps you fail fast, mm. fail early mm. and make a switch mm. to amplify it if you're doing well. If you're not doing well, if your audience doesn't like it, to truncate it, to drop it or to reduce it. Uh, it is true here. I think it's improved over the years, certainly. But going back to your question about stakeholders, you have to persuade them why you should be involved in the process early rather than let's bring the comms guys in when we need to sell this. When the planning's been done, the implementation is often part way through, uh, the strategy is complete. Mm. Communication should be integral to your strategy. And it's not only media communications, your internal communication is important, but understanding who you're trying to talk to. So what your communications objectives are is very important. But who's your audience? Your audience, is, it can be everyone, certainly. Yeah. Something like our friends at the, the ABS, uh, they're, they're talking to the vast bulk of the population. But government campaigns and communication campaigns more generally are at their best when they're targeted exercises. Mm. It is challenging to involve those senior stakeholders because uh, it, opening their eyes to risk is a confronting exercise. But helping them understand that you have measured and mitigated and taken steps to address risks. So you should be adopting a risk-aware culture in your communication, not a risk-averse culture. Mm. But again, it's a long-term process. You have to prove your results. Mm. You can't just assume that they're going to give you the green light on things. You have to earn that trust. Just a final question, um, and I do want to sort of just keep it at that audience piece because to me, you know, the, the audience and how they react and respond is, you know, perhaps the first, second, third, fourth and fifth most important thing really that you, you've got to get it right. But you, you, you raised what I think is quite an interesting question around people having so much choice and how do we not only uh, retain attention but how do we attract attention in this busy, hyper world where we've got all sorts of choices um, as to where we do apply our, what is essentially our most valuable asset, which is our time and attention. So how do we do that? How, how do we make sure that we are um, of sufficient value to our audience that they will give us some of that time and attention? Absolutely. Uh, very important question. I think relevance is the number one key. Understanding what matters to your audience because you've got very little time to attract their attention in the first instance. About six seconds, generally, is the, is the time frame. So it has to matter to them. Um, some government communications just pitched at the wrong level. It's trying to persuade people about global challenges and global issues without explaining the personal uh, or the, um, the, the imminent challenge. So that's important. Simplicity in language and presentation is really, really important. Uh, government and in, indeed the corporate sector uh, is in some cases poor at not understanding how language can alienate people. So we're talking here about acronyms, uh, jargon, corporate jargon, long-winded, uh, overly complicated language. It, you need to understand the, the language that your audience speaks and that's a different often a different language for each group, including in Australia, we're a very multicultural society, mm. uh, not just the English language. But without talking down to people, the tone you adopt is super, super important because people get switched off by that, as you'd know. Mm. Uh, if you come across as arrogant, supercilious, aloof, rude, disrespectful, 
it, people just won't stop listening. They'll actually lower their opinion of you as a result. You, you, and flame you. They will flame you. <laughs> they will torture you big time, right? So, so that's important. Um, and I think some, some principles like contrast and, dare I say it, colour in terms of visual imagery and visual presentation is important because uh, what you don't want to... You, you want to be simple and straightforward in your messaging but also repetition is important. That doesn't mean you say the same thing in the same way 20 times over. But if you've only got a very limited amount of time to say something to someone, don't try and say three things. Say one. Say it well, say it clearly. Say it in a succinct manner that addresses those issues of tone and of language. Simon Trose. What a treasure trove, <laughs> a treasure trove of uh, advice for our audience, which is essentially the reason we do the podcast is basically to give people some insight and hopefully that there are a few things that they can take away and go back to their desk or where they might be even sitting at their desk now, but to understand. So thanks for that. That's great. It serves a really valuable purpose and thanks to Content Group for having me today and to yourself, David. Yeah. I wish you all the best for Christmas and also your, your many <laughs> listeners as well. Uh, and, and thank you for the opportunity. No, thank you, Simon. And really so much value from a very wise and grizzled veteran, should, <laughs> could I say. Um, but so much advice there really about the challenges of immediacy, understanding how do we talk to journalists who are increasingly under pressure and under strain? How do we get ourselves involved with them? Then how do we tell our story, making sure it's relevant? I'm going to take away that how do, that, that picture in the mind of our audience, you know, the picture. Just think about that, you know, standing in the shoes, that notion of empathy. Um, Pope Francis has this great saying, you know, listen with the ear of the heart. And I think that's just a beautiful way of just, you know, getting to know that audience and really spending that time with them and, and, and reflection. Again, another point that Simon made there today, but so much wisdom. I think there's a double listen in that one. There's so much to it. So really, thank you to Simon today for coming in. And to you, the audience, thanks for coming back once again. We really enjoy the fact that you do come back every week. And we will be back at the same time next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.